So uh, if you're just joining us, we're in a series called Best Story Ever. It's an overview of the entire Bible. And we're now in the New Testament. And who can remember what it is that we've looked at in the past couple of weeks on the New Testament? What were, what were the, the parts of the story that we've seen so far? Okay, Christ's genealogy. So the birth of the Messiah. That was the first, first week. Who remembers what happened after that? Oh, Thanksgiving. Yeah, right. The Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. So Jesus comes and he reveals himself to be, well, first of all, a remarkable teacher, but more than just a teacher. He comes as the authoritative standard of true righteousness. And then, who remembers what we talked about last week? Yeah, Stephen. The storm in the boat? Yeah, Jesus' miracles. He reveals himself to not just be a mere man, but God in the flesh. And one of the ways he demonstrates that is through the miracles. And tonight, we're now coming to a new chapter in the story. And this is one of the most pivotal chapters in the story. The claim I want to make to you is that if you listen carefully over the next 30 minutes, when you leave tonight, you will be equipped to understand the big picture of the Bible, the last 2,000 years of human history, and the purpose of your life. Tall order, isn't it? But that's, that, that's the claim I want to make. If you listen carefully to this chapter, then you're going to be able to understand those things. This, uh, th that's why I say that this is one of the most pivotal moments in the biblical story. You might be surprised to hear me say that, but I'll, I'll explain what I mean as we go on. So our text tonight is Matthew 13. I mean, we've actually looked at this passage at Thrive before. Um, tonight, I'm actually taking a message that I have given at Thrive a couple of years ago, kind of repackaging it. I don't think most of you were here when I gave it. It was a little while ago. Um, but to get into the message, I want to I actually have us be interactive. Um, ordinarily, you might read the whole chapter in small groups. Um, tonight, I want to just sort of grab that part of the night and move it into the present. I mean, have us read this chapter together. So what I want to have us do is divide up into some groups. What I'm going to do is just kind of like wave my hand here, and we'll say that this side of the room is group one. We'll have this side of the room be group four. And then you guys in the middle, maybe if we just like split it right down the line, like, yeah, from Nolan on over to one side, you guys can be group three. And then from Ian on over to this side, you guys can be group two, okay? So one, two, three, four. And what I want you guys to do, up on the screen, there's going to be a breakdown of verses um, in these four different groups. And what I want you guys to do is, in your group, read just that selection of verses from the chapter out loud. And when we come back together in about four or five minutes, I'm going to ask you to have your group paraphrase what your section was about. And that's how we're going to be able to get a sense of what's in this chapter that we're looking at tonight. So just take about four or five minutes, read the passage out loud, and then be prepared to just give a quick paraphrase of what was in your section to the big group. Ready, set, go. <clears throat> All right, let's come back together. Oh, no, I was watching the clock. Okay, so let's come back together. And you guys are group one, so you guys get to go first. Everyone, listen to group one. Drum roll, please. Uh, I need someone from group one to stand up and give a summary of what your section was about. I was supposed to do the interpretive dance part, um, so I'm going to hand this off to Elias. 
So Jesus is speaking a parable about seed that lands on four different types of soil, one of which is along the path, and the birds eat the seed that lands on the path. One is rocky ground that doesn't have much soil, and so it doesn't grow roots, and so when the sun comes out, it withers away. A third is thorns, where the thorns choke um, the plant, and the last would be good soil, which produces fruit. Wow, 50 points to Gryffindor. That was great. Okay, uh, who from this group would like to summarize your guys' section? Mackenzie? Send this. Just gonna not have my back to anyone. Okay, so basically, uh, the disciples ask him, why do they speak to, or why does he speak to the people in parables? And he says that the people do not have eyes to see or ears to hear. And then he goes into this whole tirade, basically, where there are categories of people. So there are the path people, there are the soil people, and then there are the thorns, thorn people. And then among the, or sorry, the field people. Then among the field people, there are the categories of, like, you yield 100-fold, you yield 60-fold, 30-fold, etc. So, Yeah. All right. And by the way, you might have noticed, just to save time, I'm not going to have us read it. Uh, You can do that a little later if you want on your own. But uh, who from this group would like to? Okay, great. So for this section, we have the couple of parables. The first parable showing a distinction between the good seed and the bad seed, those that uh, are in the church, but those that have... uh, understood the word and those that do not. You can only tell a difference once seed has been born or fruit has been born. Then you have the kingdom of heaven, the the church growing up and being greater than all the other plants in the field. The kingdom of heaven being like a bowl of flour or a, uh, a dough and growing once the the leaven has been added to it both of those talking about the eventual growth of the church and then the purpose behind the parables that that which has been hidden from the beginning will only be revealed to those uh, that understand. All right, and last but not least, Isaiah. All right, so in our passage, we found that it was talking about what happens at the end of the age And it specifically emphasized that at the end of the age, those who don't follow God will be thrown into the fiery furnace. Sounds a lot like hell. And those who do follow God, um, they get to look forward to the kingdom of heaven. And there's also a couple verses about just how valuable the kingdom of heaven is and how you should give up everything to go and buy and enter into the kingdom of heaven. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Cool. Well, thank you guys all for summarizing. And hopefully that is a way just to get a quick lay of the land of what is in this chapter. So this is the chapter where Jesus shares a series of parables that uh, many of you probably have heard before. So the parable of the sower, for example, is a pretty well-known one of Jesus' parables. And you might have noticed as you were looking at this chapter that most of the parables begin with the following phrase. The phrase is, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. So what that tells us is that this chapter is about 
the kingdom of God. That's the major theme of the chapter, and we're going to get into it by noticing three things that pertain to this chapter that you guys can look at a little later in small groups. I've made them all start with R, so note takers, you guys can be consoled. I'm on your side. The three R's, rejection, revelation, and reasons. We're going to see a rejection in this passage. We're going to see a very pivotal revelation in this passage, and then we're going to see some reasons that all of this matters. So, first of all, Verse 1, look at verse 1 in the chapter. It says, that same day. That, well, the same day as, as what would be the logical question there. What the beginning of chapter 13 is doing is it's actually pointing you back to chapter 12. So in chapter 12, we are catching Jesus having a number of significant interactions with the Pharisees. Now, remember, prior to this, we, we saw Jesus' miracles. Um, you know, he's healing the sick, raising the dead. He's going around doing good. And in chapter 12, the miracles continue. But what's especially prominent now is the way that the Jews reject him. Now, you know, Jesus is not a total stranger to rejection, like in chapters 8 and 9. Last week, if you read those carefully, you'll see that there already have been some serious storm clouds that are brewing over Jesus' ministry. But it's in this chapter, chapter 12, where the rejection of Jesus hits a fever pitch. So if you, this is not on the handout, but if you happen to have a Bible, if you were to look back at chapter 12, sort of the context for chapter 13, look at verse 24. So what's happened here is that Jesus, the Pharisees have just seen Jesus heal yet another demon-possessed man, and they respond to the miracle by saying, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, in the time of Jesus, Beelzebub was another name for Satan. So think about this. The Pharisees had just watched Jesus liberate a man from physical and spiritual agony. They've just seen the ultimate demonstration of Jesus' power and goodness and mercy. And how do they respond to that? They say, oh, Jesus, by the way, we think you're a servant of Satan. Can't get a whole lot worse than that, can it? I mean, like, shy of killing him, which will happen eventually, you, what, what greater act of rejection could there be to Jesus than literally claiming that he is an agent of the devil? And yet, that is what has just happened right before you come to chapter 13. And so, because of the Jews' climactic rejection of their king, at this exact point, Jesus' ministry undergoes a tectonic shift. So, for example, you know, at the end of chapter 12, you begin to see this. Jesus begins to distance himself from his own people. This is the part where uh, some people come to him and they say, Hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are looking for you. And Jesus says, Who are my mother and brothers? It's those who do the will of God. So he's separating himself <clears throat> from his flesh and blood family, the Jews, and saying that his true family are those who actually follow him. And then even more crucially, you have chapter 13. Chapter 13 is the very first time in all of Matthew's gospel that Jesus speaks in parables. You know, if you know about Jesus, if you've read some of the New Testament, you know, parables are, you know, a lot of people have heard of Jesus' parables. But it's actually here in chapter 13 in Matthew where Jesus first speaks in parables. Um, anyone know what a parable is? Any ideas, Stephen? 
yeah, that's great. So like a story that has a certain message you're trying to get across, almost like a sermon illustration or something. Now, what's interesting about this chapter is that, you know, a sermon illustration is designed to kind of help you understand something, right? But it's a little bit more complicated and nuanced in, in this chapter if you read it carefully. So the parables actually puzzle the disciples. You know, they've never heard Jesus speak in parables before. So, so one of the things they ask him, this is in chapter 13, verse 10, they say, why do you speak to the people in parables? In other words, you know, like, Jesus, why all of a sudden are you, like, changing your style here, you know? Like, why are you all of a sudden pulling out these little verbal puzzles? And in the verses uh, that, that you can look at a little later, um, I think it was the, maybe the second group, I think you guys had this section, Jesus explains that his reason for speaking in parables is twofold. On the one hand, he says that the reason he speaks in parables is actually to hide the truth from those like the Pharisees who have already resolved to reject him. And this is actually made the most clear if you go to Mark's version of this same passage. So this is Mark 4, 11 and 12. It says, uh, Jesus talking, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. So not what you would expect, is it? That one aspect of parables is that they're actually designed to hide the truth from those who don't want to hear it. But then on the other hand, the second purpose for speaking in parables on Jesus' part is actually to reveal the truth to those like his disciples who have received him and decided to follow him. And you'll actually notice why. Um, that, 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 well, you'll notice in Matthew 13, 36, verse 36, um, just sort of an example of this. Jesus speaks to the crowd in parables, but only to the disciples does Jesus explain the meaning of those parables. So this is actually very, very, very clever. There's almost a, a kind of ambiguity about the parables. Parables are really simple stories. You know, they're so simple that a child could, could kind of hear them and, and make sense of all of the elements of them. You know, but there's symbols like farmers and seeds and soils. Um, and they're illustrating spiritual truths. And the truth, in one sense, is right there. You know, the symbols are so simple. The, the, the stories are so basic that it's kind of right there, easy to grasp. But at the same time, identifying what those symbols stand for can be pretty mystifying unless Jesus, the master storyteller, gives you clues. And so for that reason, in verse 11, Jesus calls his teaching about the kingdom the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Because parables hide truth from those who reject Jesus, but reveal truth to those who accept him. I mean, just by the way, kind of like a point of application. You know, God is merciful. Like it says in Isaiah 65, I was found by those who were not seeking me. And so God can graciously pierce through our pride and our stubbornness to make himself known to us. But very often, God will reveal himself to you on the basis of how much you are listening to him. And so the parables are kind of a similar, a, a similar example. So, praise God that he reveals himself to people who aren't always listening to him. But at the same time, Jesus says, if you don't want to hear what I have to say, well, then I'll give you what you want. And you won't be able to hear what I say. So that's the context of, of the parables. They're spoken in the context of Jesus being dramatically rejected. But now the question is, what do the parables reveal? So that's the second R, revelation. What is the revelation that Jesus wants his disciples to know? 
And there's one thing we know already. We know that the parables have something to do with the kingdom of God. That's why they start with the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, one of the best ways I think I can kind of describe what the the big reveal is here is is like this. Uh, So for most of the Jews, their understanding of the kingdom was probably a little bit like a chapter book. So chapter one was that the king was going to come. That's what they expected chapter one to be. And this was the much-prophesied, long-awaited king, the Messiah. And chapter 2 would be that that king would reign. And his reign would bring about everything that Israel had ever hoped for. So the Romans would be gone. Israel's glory would be restored. Evil would be defeated. Righteousness would reign. I mean, basically, it's kind of what we think about when we think of heaven. That's what they expected would happen. The king would come, and then chapter 2, all of those wonderful things would follow. But what Jesus reveals here is that what most of the Jews had missed was that there was actually a chapter 1.5, a chapter one and a half, in between what they thought was chapter one and chapter two. God has another phase of human history. Or, uh, here's an analogy for all of you Harry Potter fans. So uh, when you're at King's Cross Station, you see platform nine and you see platform 10, But watch out lest you miss platform nine and three quarters. Jesus is revealing platform nine and three quarters, so to speak. Uh, Let me show you another way to wrap your mind around what Jesus is revealing here visually. So up on the screen, I've got a picture. So uh, this, this is what the prophets saw. I'm thinking Old Testament prophets who spoke of things that would happen in the future in the plan of God. And if you read, for example, like we did, a chapter like Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is all about the first coming of the Messiah, that he would come and that he would suffer a substitutionary, sacrificial death, be raised from the dead to justify all those who put their faith in him. The prophets saw that aspect of the first coming. And then what a lot of the prophets actually are writing about is the second coming of Jesus, where they see the day when he really does bring in a a reign of peace and prosperity where all evil is is done away with. And now there are some hints in scripture that there actually would be a period of time in between those things. But the prophets did not receive revelation about what that period would be like. And by the way, you are living in it. You are living in it right now. And it's what you might call the church age. When and I won't get into all of the, 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 the subtleties here, but when Jesus' people, the church, are on the earth in between his first coming and his second coming. So do you see why this is so pivotal to understanding the big picture of the Bible? Because in this chapter, Jesus is going to give us hitherto unknown revelation about a chapter in human history about which the Old Testament was almost entirely silent and that you're living in right now. And by the way, you know, one of the other reasons that I, I find this picture helpful is that a lot of the, the, in fact, probably the vast majority of the Jews had no idea even that the Messiah would come two times at all. They thought it was a one and done deal. Remember chapter one, chapter two? This is the beginning of Jesus showing he's actually going to come not just once, but twice. The first time to bear judgment and the second time to bring judgment. Now, what I want to do, I've sort of told you what the revelation is. I now want to show you from the text of Scripture. 
I mean, to help us draw this out of the scriptures, um, I want to introduce you just to a little outline called the stages of the kingdom. And by stages, I, I simply mean the different ways that the kingdom of God is described or manifested at various points in the unfolding of God's plan in the Bible. And there are five that I want to give you, and they all start with the letter P, so you can remember them. Now, the first phase is actually one that we referenced through a scripture that we, we, we referenced a, a couple weeks ago. Uh, and, and it's Daniel 2.44. This will be up on the screen. And this is Old Testament prophecy. It's prophesying about the kingdom of God. And it says, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never, should say never, never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. So the reason I put this verse up there is that this verse is one of the clearest verses that is talking about the first stage of the kingdom, which you might call the prophesied kingdom. This stage of the kingdom unfolded during the time of the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophets who predicted a time when God would set up a visible, physical kingdom on earth that would never pass away, that would supplant all the evil, abusive kingdoms of human beings that we have known all through human history. So the first stage is the prophesied kingdom. Then you see the second stage when Jesus comes on the scene. When Jesus comes, he is the king of that kingdom. And that's what we've been looking at all through the, the, the New Testament part of the series so far. How Jesus comes, he ticks off all the boxes that the, 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 the messianic king was supposed to fulfill. He's presenting himself to Israel as the king whom they had been promised. And so the second stage of the kingdom is through Jesus, the kingdom being presented to the Jewish people. Jesus comes on the scene. He offers to the Jews the kingdom that their scriptures had promised, if only they will accept him as the king. Which, by the way, is why throughout Matthew's gospel, first John the Baptist and then Jesus announced to the Jews that God's kingdom is at hand. In other words, it, you know, it's at hand in the sense that the full manifestation of it could be right around the corner if only they would accept Jesus as the king. And in another sense, it was right around the corner, or it was at hand, because the kingdom was actually present in the person of the king himself. So, first stage, the prophesied kingdom. Second stage, the presented kingdom. But what we've seen so far is that as Jesus presents himself as the king, as he offers the kingdom, what do his own people do? They reject him. I mean, this is mind-blowing. Who would have thought that after, you know, imagine like waiting for something for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years, and then when it finally comes, you say, nah, <laughs> I don't want it. That, that's kind of what is happening here. And so this then takes you into the nitty-gritty of Matthew 13. When you were looking at this chapter, you might have noticed that the parables of the kingdom share a number of themes. So, for example, four out of the seven deal with growth. You know, the parable of the sower is all about how the seed of the word of God grows in different soil. Or the parable of the wheat and the weeds is all about how a good crop grows alongside a bad crop. And then in the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast, the kingdom is compared to something very small that grows or spreads an enormous amount. So that's kind of one theme, the theme of growth. Um, a, a second theme you might see uh, across the parables is the theme of separation. So in the, both the parables of the wheat and the weeds and then of the fishing net, 
uh, the kingdom of God is compared to a mixture of good and bad that remain intermingled until God comes and separates them. Now, this, this feature would have been especially strange if you were a Jew because, you know, the way that in the first stage of the kingdom, when the kingdom was being prophesied in the Old Testament, you know, that, that was not what was anticipated. When the kingdom came, remember what Daniel said, that kingdom would come and crush all the other evil human kingdoms. So in the Old Testament, you know, they expected a kingdom where good and bad didn't mix. The coming of the kingdom meant the elimination of anything evil. But in Matthew 13, Jesus is describing a stage of the kingdom in which evil is actually still active. So remember, you know, the, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. You know, who is it who sows the weeds? If you look at it, which you can do in small groups later, it's Satan. It's the devil who sows the weeds. You know, there couldn't be a more clear demonstration that in this stage of the kingdom, evil is actually still alive and well. So what's going on here? What's going on? is that Jesus is revealing a secret that wasn't made known in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the expectation was the kingdom would just come at once. It would be a kingdom where righteousness reigned, wickedness was cast out. But here Jesus is teaching that during the age that we are living in, in which the king is being rejected by the world and by his own, by and large, his own Jewish people, that the fullness of the kingdom that the Old Testament spoke about has been, you might say, postponed. That the kingdom has come, but it's not fully here in the way that the Old Testament said. You might say it's a provisional stage of the kingdom. So the third stage, there's kind of two options for this. You can call it the postponed kingdom, or maybe the provisional kingdom. And this will last until the king returns. Now, this stage, the third stage, is characterized by what you might call mixed results. Mixed results. So think of the parable of the sower, in which the word of God, which is represented by the farmer's seed, it gets scattered, but it produces a pretty decidedly mixed crop. You know, did you notice that most of the seed doesn't really make it? And that only some people who hear the word of God actually respond and grow to maturity. So that's uh, kind of one example. Moreover, this is a provisional stage of the kingdom that's also mixed in the sense that good and evil, truth and falsehood, actually are allowed to coexist alongside each other. So, for example, uh, look at the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Where it's actually, if you, if you look at it, it's suggesting that during this stage of the kingdom, there will be a mixture of true and false believers. You know, maybe... Uh, you can think of examples of people down through the history of you know, the last several centuries, maybe people who called themselves Christians, but very clearly were not. You know, there are times, especially you know, back a couple centuries, where you know, there are certain countries where everyone said they were a Christian. It was just the cultural thing to do. But not all of those people were true believers in Jesus, who had really had their hearts converted by the Holy Spirit. Or, uh, you know, take the parable of the mustard seed. Um, so the mustard seed is very small, um, but it's said here to grow into an enormous tree. Um, and Jesus' point, you know, it would seem is that the kingdom has, you know, pretty small beginnings, right? Like it began with just 12 disciples, and then it grows into this big thing that spread nearly around the whole world today. So it begins as this small kind of inauspicious thing that really grows. 
Uh, and, and that's, I think, one truth that that parable is trying to get across. But if you were a Jewish reader listening to this, you would have been really struck that Jesus says that it actually grows into a gigantic tree where the birds come and nest in the branches. Uh, one reason for that is because if you go back to the book of Daniel in chapter 4, that actually is a symbol of a, a tree with birds in it. It's actually a symbol of one of the evil human kingdoms. And then on top of that, if you even study just this chapter on its own, the symbol of birds here has already been used. It's in the parable of the sower where the birds actually represent the devil. And so one of the things that I see in this parable that I would suggest to you may be present is, again, Jesus is emphasizing that as his kingdom grows, as the gospel spreads, there are going to be some people who claim to be a part of that kingdom, but really are not. They're false believers, false professors. And by the way, we actually have a word that describes this in the English language. And it's a word called Christendom. Uh, so Christendom means the civilization that grew out of Christianity. You know, Christian Rome, Christian Europe, Christian America, we might say. You know, all these huge empires. And, you know, that's actually been, there's been a lot of good that's come from that. But there have also been a lot of things that are not good that have come from that. Where when you've seen the power of Christianity married to the power of the state, there have been massive abuses that have been done in the name of Jesus, many of which we are still reeling from today. Uh, when I was in college, I had a, a Christian history professor who used to say that every time the church has tried to marry the culture in order to gain power, the church is always lost. And it's the church that actually has wound up corrupting itself. So while the parable of the mustard seed foretells the enormous growth of Christianity, I think there's reason to believe that some of this growth is actually predicted to be by Jesus a kind of false growth. So the secret that Jesus reveals in this chapter is that there's a stage of the kingdom in which the fullness of that kingdom has been postponed, and that what we're living in now is sort of a provisional form of that kingdom not known in the Old Testament. Sometimes this is kind of called the already and the not yet, where we see like a lot of the elements of the, the, the kingdom that is coming present in our lives. Like Jesus, love, joy, peace, all these things that belong to the age when he comes back to reign. We get to experience a lot of that now. But at the same time, we only have the down payment of that. We don't have the fullness of all of that. And so the kingdom is already here, kind of, and it's also kind of not yet here. We're kind of in this in-between space. But it won't always be this way. The last two stages of the kingdom... Um, are actually alluded to here in this chapter. So did you notice that Jesus puts a limit on how long this third middle stage of the kingdom will last? If you look at verses 40 and 49, he says that there will come a time at the end of the age when there will be a separation, when good and evil, when truth and falsehood will be clearly seen for what they are and they will be given their just deserts. And that age will begin when Jesus comes back and reigns on this earth, and Revelation says that that reign will have a period of a thousand years where he'll be reigning, and then following that, which is going to be the very last part of this series, that'll give way to the new heavens and the new earth, where there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. And so those last two stages, number four, you could call the physical kingdom. When Jesus comes back, sets up his kingdom on earth, and reigns in the fullness of all that the scriptures have predicted, and then the final stage, the new heavens and the new earth, you could call the perpetual kingdom that will never, ever, ever end. 
So the five stages, what are the five stages? Number one, there's the prophesied kingdom. Number two, there's the presented kingdom. Number three, there's the postponed or provisional kingdom. Number four, the physical kingdom. And then five, the perpetual kingdom. And Matthew 13 is particularly zooming in on that middle stage. It's describing to you what the Old Testament didn't make known and what that stage of the kingdom is going to be like. And as we said, it's a, it's a stage where good and evil, mixed results are allowed to exist together until the king comes back to set everything right. Now, that's the revelation of this chapter. And just as we conclude, I want to I wanna just end practically. And I want to just mention three reasons that this actually matters to our lives. <laughs> why, why is this pivotal chapter of the story so important? Three things. And the first one is, this chapter of the story reveals that God is a merciful God. God is a merciful God. Remember what, the, what most of the Jews thought. They thought it was just chapter 1, then chapter 2. But what we have been experiencing for almost 2,000 years, kind of chapter 1 and a half, is 2,000 years of God delaying his return. And why has he done that? According to Scripture, the reason that he has done that is in part so that we would have the time to repent and come to him. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You might look at the world we live in and see all of its brokenness and say, God, why do you allow so much evil and suffering in the world? But if, as we've seen, the, the, the next stage of the kingdom is Jesus coming back and eliminating all evil, well, if he came back and tried to eliminate evil, now he'd have to get rid of us. And so those 2,000 years of what sometimes seems like God's silence, seen from the other side, is actually God's mercy. God is a merciful God. God is a patient God. It says in Scripture that God is a God of unlimited patience. So number one, God is a merciful God. And then number two that you see from this chapter is that this world isn't our home. This world isn't our home. And I know that's not a very popular thing to say. I think people hear that and think it's a little bit old-fashioned. But this is, this is not only true, but if you grab onto this, I, I, your Christian life is going to become so much more resilient if you really latch onto this, that this world is not your home. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, some people think, oh, if, this, if Christians are always looking toward heaven, then that means that they're just going to, like, check out of this world and never actually care about people and just let it all burn. And nothing could be further from the truth. You know, if you look at church history, the people who had their eyes most on heaven actually made the greatest impact on earth. <laughs> and having their eyes on heaven allowed them, you know, gave them the hope to, to, to push through it and to give their lives away on this earth. But what Jesus is saying here is that, look, guys, the kingdom hasn't fully come yet. You know, I came the first, Jesus says, I came the first time to suffer and to bear judgment. And you as my people, if you're going to follow me in this stage between my first coming and my second coming, you're going to suffer too. You're going to long for the fullness of the kingdom to come too. And this chapter is a reminder that that longing we have 
is a sign not to settle for the things of this world, not to give in to the temptations of this world, but to look and long for the better home, the better country that God has prepared for those who love him. And then, third and finally, this story teaches that you can't have the kingdom without the king. You can't have the kingdom without the king. You know, what we've seen is that there's this whole chapter of human history that we're living in right now where, you know, the world has crucified Jesus. The world is living in rejection of the king. And so we're living in this time where there are, you know, mixed results, good and evil, growing alongside each other, blah, blah, blah. One day God's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He's going to do that on the basis of those who have put their trust in Jesus, who know Jesus. John 3.16. You know, God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. If you know Jesus tonight, you will not perish. If you know Jesus tonight, if you've put your trust in Jesus tonight, Jesus says you are not destined for the furnace. You're not destined for hell. You're destined to be with me in heaven forever. And the question then that that kind of all leaves us with is, why would there even be this season of rejection in the first place? I mean, if the kingdom of God is full of miracles and hope and joy and mercy, why would anyone reject it? And the answer, just kind of if you wanted a one-word answer to that, I I would just throw out the word idolatry. Um, Let me just throw up a quick quote on the screen. Um, This is just kind of a way to think about why our hearts are so often led to want to reject the king. Um, And it says, um, idolatry may not involve explicit denials of God's existence or character. Uh, It may well come in the form of an over-attachment to something that is in itself perfectly good. An idol can be a physical object. A property, a person, an activity, a role, an institution, a hope, an image, an idea, a pleasure, a hero, anything that can substitute for God. The reason that we are so prone to reject the king, the reason that the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day rejected the king, is because of idolatry, because their hearts desired something over and above Jesus. You know, for many of the Jewish leaders, that might have been You know, they they wanted Jesus uh, to not rock the boat. They didn't want the Romans to come away and take away their nation. It actually says that in John 11. And so they were actually valuing kind of their own kingdom more than they were valuing the king of that kingdom. And we can do the same thing. If you've been around Thrive for a while, you've heard me read this before. But this is just one of my favorite little articles um, that just gives some examples of how we do this today, how we can... Just make an idol out of something and maybe even slap Jesus' name on it. So listen to this. This is from an article called, Who Do You Say That I Am? There's Republican Jesus, who is against tax increases and activist judges and for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus, who's against Wall Street and Walmart and for reducing our carbon footprint and for spending other people's money. There's Therapist Jesus, who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are, and not to be too hard on ourselves. There's Touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcome of Super Bowls. There's Good Example Jesus, who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. And then, of course, there's the real Jesus who is way more merciful, way more wonderful, way more awe-inspiring than any of the the, the idolatrous versions of Jesus that we could ever invent for ourselves. 
You can't have the kingdom without the king. You can't have Jesus' blessings without Jesus himself. And the obstacle to us desiring the king for who he is is that our idolatrous hearts want to desire something else. And so just as we conclude tonight, I just want to speak to what, 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 what does God offer us to heal our hearts? You know, how can we get out of the rut so we actually would desire the king and not just his kingdom? You can't change your desires just by, like, shouting at your heart. You can't change your desires by changing your behavior. The way that you change your desires is just to gaze at Jesus. There's an old preacher who once said, a glance at Christ will save, but it's the gazing at Christ that sanctifies Jesus laid down his life on the cross for your sin and mine. He died so that he could take out of us our stony hearts, our dead hearts that want to chase after other things, so that he could replace that with a heart for him, a heart that loves him, that cherishes him, that longs to live for him and serve him. And so if you want to get in touch with the new heart, then just look at Jesus. When you see what he did for you on the cross, when you see the sacrifice that he made for you, what could be more desirable than him? What could be more wonderful and beautiful than that? Look at Jesus. Get in touch with the new heart, and you'll find yourself desiring not just the kingdom, but the king himself. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that you... Long for us to know your plans and purposes. And thank you that in this chapter, you set those things out for us. Father, I pray that we would desire not just your gifts, not just your blessings, not just your kingdom, but that we would be a people who love and long for the king himself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.